I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It was the time of our annual harvest festival in the village, a time when we came together to celebrate the bounty of the earth and the bonds of our community. Laughter filled the air, and the smell of delicious foods and the sounds of music and dance filled our hearts with joy. However, none of us could have anticipated the events that would soon unfold. During the height of the celebrations, an enigmatic stranger appeared in our midst. He was an odd figure, with a gleam in his eyes and an aura of mystery that captivated us all. Claiming to possess supernatural powers, he challenged the villagers to a game, promising to grant us extraordinary gifts if we could best him. Intrigued by the stranger's words, we eagerly accepted his challenge, unaware of the true nature of our opponent. As the game began, we soon discovered that the stranger was no ordinary man, but rather a cryptid known as the Trickster, a shape-shifting being that thrived on chaos and mischief. With each passing moment, 
the trickster used his paranormal abilities to manipulate the villagers, turning us against one another and pushing our community to the brink of destruction. Friend turned against friend, and the bonds that had united us for generations began to unravel. In the midst of the chaos, our village's wise elder recognized the danger we were facing. She knew that the only way to save our community from ruin was to outwit the trickster and put an end to his malicious game. Drawing upon her knowledge of ancient lore and her own deep wisdom, she devised a plan to confront the cryptid and expose his true nature. The elder gathered the remaining villagers and shared her plan. We listened intently, understanding the gravity of the situation. In the importance of unity in the face of the trickster's deceptions, with renewed determination, we followed the elder's guidance and played the game, using our wits and our trust in one another to resist the trickster's manipulations. Despite our best efforts, however, the trickster's power was too great. He wiped out the majority of our people, leaving only a small group of us standing. Realizing that he could no longer deceive us or sow chaos among us, the cryptid fled, vanishing into the shadows from which he had emerged, never to be found again. In the aftermath of the devastation, those of us who remained came together to rebuild our village and heal the wounds of the past. We mourned the loss of our loved ones and vowed to honor their memories by preserving the lessons we had learned. The story of the trickster would be passed down through the generations, a cautionary tale of the dangers of hubris and the importance of unity in the face of adversity. And though our village would never be the same, we held on to the hope that together we could face whatever challenges the future might hold. I'm currently 30, but was about 17 at this time. I was at a friend's house, two brothers. For the second or third time, deep country, hung out into the evening and night. The older one in my grade randomly brings up some bright light that shines around that isolated area. I didn't think much of it, but they seemed to be down for a little night adventure. We decided to roll a blunt and go sit out in some pasture field. We sat around, talked, looked at the stars. I didn't even remember what they were talking about earlier. Suddenly everything I could see lit up like day. For a fraction of a second, it was as if a digital camera three miles wide was hovering above us and just snapped a picture with the flash on. I remember seeing the hills in the distance, trees and cows here and there. It was over as soon as it started, and we all looked at each other, confused. Our expressions all lead to the same reaction, and all of us run. We sprinted through pastures and helped each other through barbed wire fences, just scared. According to the two brothers, this was not a rare occurrence in Milheim, Texas. We're not friends anymore, in case anyone wonders why I use that context. I don't have a single clue as to what this was, just that it happened. Freaked me out and blew my mind. Had me feeling like a bacterium in a Petri dish for a moment. I've never heard of anything even somewhat related to this. It seems coincidental that I saw it the same day I was told about it, but that's how it happened. And no, I'm not talking about a spark or a light bulb. It was literally like clear daylight for about two, four seconds. 
Clear skies looking at the stars all night. No lightning or thunder. There was no sound to it. In the small town of Crossland, Kentucky, humble people live simple lives and farm and sell goods to the bigger neighboring Pierrier, Tennessee, and Murray, Kentucky, respectively. In the early 1960s, a man named Larry stumbled upon the snake. Unlike anything common to the area, it was 65 feet long by length and 6 feet by width. And in his words, well, I had thought it was a moonshine still, until it hissed at me. A sketch of the beast was drawn by his nephew perfectly to his description. It was emerald green with irregular brown splotches on its back and underbelly. Branching off from other snake species, it had a row of human-like teeth and fangs where its insecores would be. Small spikes lined across its back and head and ended off with a crest between its eyes. As the story spread, journalists from around the United States flocked to get a glimpse of the creature that scared the residents of Crossland. Hunters and trackers also attempted to catch the creature to no avail. In 1977, an expert snake hunter finally caught the beast, but was revealed as a fake as the snake was less than half the size and actually from a circus, which was in the area at the time. During the era of the snake, Livestock and pets mysteriously disappeared with the only remaining evidence were bells, collars, and blood. The early 80s proved the end of the snake overturn as residents of Crossland, now part of Pierrier, Tennessee, see part one, and their town have faded into obscurity. Before I end this off, this is 100% true. Crossland, Tennessee exists, and evidence of the snake hunt can be in many local newspapers from that time and region of the Tennessee's and Kentucky state line. As many wonder on about the past terror of a monstrous snake, could it happen again in those deep, dense cornfields, the dark, dreary woods of the night, or the muddy, murky waters of the creeks and marshes? One thing is for sure, snake season is spring. As an ambitious archaeologist, I had always been captivated by the mysteries of the past, especially the stories of the long-lost Native American tribes. When I stumbled upon the ruins of one such tribe hidden deep within a dense forest, I knew I had made a monumental discovery. Among the artifacts I found was a set of ancient texts detailing their encounters with a mysterious and terrifying cryptid known as the Howling Wind. According to the texts, this creature was believed to control the weather and unleash devastating storm. I felt a mixture of excitement and trepidation as I continued my research, eager to unravel the secrets of this forgotten tribe. However, I could not foresee the consequences of my actions. By delving into the mysteries of the past, I had unknowingly unleashed the dormant spirits of the tribe's ancestors. Angered by the desecration of their sacred grounds, these spirits sought vengeance. In their quest for justice, the spirits summoned the howling wind to terrorize the nearby modern Native American community. 
Unrelenting storms ravaged the land, and the people were left in a state of fear and despair. Realizing the connection between my actions and the chaos that had befallen the community, I knew it was my responsibility to make amends. With the help of the community, we worked together to understand our ancestors' connection to the cryptid and find a way to bring peace to the land. We studied the ancient texts and discovered a possible solution, a gun filled with the poisonous blood of our ancestors, which was believed to have the power to defeat the howling wind, determined to end the suffering of the people. I ventured into the heart of the storm to confront the howling wind. The creature's fury was unlike anything I had ever experienced, but I held on to the hope that our ancestors' wisdom would guide us to victory. As the wind howled around me, I took aim and fired the gun, the poisonous blood piercing the cryptid's ethereal form. The howling wind's screams filled the air as its power began to wane and the storm finally subsided. The spirits of the ancestors, satisfied that their sacred grounds had been avenged, retreated into the realm of the past. With the chaos finally at an end, the community came together to rebuild and heal. We vowed to honor our ancestors by respecting the land and the ancient wisdom they had left behind. The story of the howling wind would live on as a reminder of the power of unity and the importance of understanding the past in order to protect our future. I never told this story to anybody but my daughter because I knew nobody would believe me. I don't even believe it. I worked at a video store back in the early 90s and this couple came up to the counter to pay for their movies. They were talking and the girl was saying, I know what I saw. It was a centaur. I was like, huh? Her friend said, you must have been drinking something or uh, on drugs. After they left, I was thinking the same thing. That girl was on something cause there's no such thing as a centaur. Fast forward a couple of months, me and my boyfriend were going to a racetrack about an hour away from our town. We were making small conversation and I looked to the side of the road. The road we were on was known for deers, and I was looking out. As I continued to look, I saw a man on a horse, and as we got closer, it wasn't a man on a horse, he was a part of the horse. I turned to my boyfriend and asked him, did he see it? He didn't, and I was not going to tell him what I saw, because he didn't believe in that sort of thing. I wondered if this was what the girl in the video store saw. I just can't believe what I saw. A centaur that's made up, right? A long time ago, before photos were relevant in Alaska, my ancestors lived in harmony with the little people. Yes, their next-door neighbors and shit. They lived like that for a while until one day, one of the dogs of the native people ate one of the little people's baby. As it had stumbled too close to the dog, food was scarce to try and keep every single dog pack well fed. The little people leader met with the native leader and suggested that they put down the dog and all would be forgiven. Mind you, this was the native's finest dog and was the leader for many years and he decided against it. Yes, I know it's kind of petty and 
I will never understand why he couldn't sacrifice one dog as great as he was and try and craft another leader to keep peace between the peoples. As you'd imagine, both sides split up, and it's been that way ever since. It does fascinate me how life would be so much different if the native leader complied with the deal. I do wonder how it would be to live with them time to time. Anyway, one winter night in cold-ass Alaska at around 5 a.m., I went outside to smoke a cigarette. It was unnervingly quiet and dark, as it usually is that time of night. I live in a really, really, really small town that barely stretches across a mile long. Outside of my house, there is one LED light connected to an electric pole that's about a block or two away. There's never anyone out riding their machines or four-wheelers that time of night, and rarely ever is someone walking around, let alone running. I'm smoking my cigarette, and about halfway through, I saw it at the corner of my eye. At first, I thought it was someone taking a jog, but who would be jogging at 5 a.m. on a cold winter night? Not insulting my town, but no one runs here, lol. Not outside, at least. There are some white teachers who do run, but all the teachers were out of town, back with their families in their home state, as it was Christmas season. It was also snowing lightly. I turned to look and, oh, F. This seven-foot mother F was just blasting down the street. I'm talking Usain Bolt shit going for that gold. I'm not really great at height perception, but I know he was at minimum six feet eight seven. But here's where it gets creepy. When you run, you move your arms right. It's just instinct, and I believe it does help you go faster with the right form. When I saw it, both arms were tucked on the side of his hips. No arms moving, but those legs were going at least 20, 25 miles per hour. I was surprised at this point, but then I noticed something else it was doing. It watched me as it ran by. I can see the parka rough outlines at the top of its body, facing towards me the whole time it was in sight. No arms moving, only legs, looking at me as it burned through the road. Now I did say there was a bright LED light a couple blocks away from my house and it faces towards my place, but that didn't do any help in trying to scope out its facial features, especially since the light was on the side as it was running and completely on the other side of its face as it was looking towards me. I watched it go by as it just watched me also. It felt like an eternity, but really it was only about a 10-15 second encounter. Right behind it, a fox was chasing him, almost like it was its pet or something. Although it's widely known in the state big and little people have supernatural powers, one of which is being able to transform into an animal it chooses. So I really don't know if that was its buddy or its pet. I'll never know. As soon as both of them were out of my sight, I went further onto the porch to see where they went. My friend, when I told him about that part, said, Ab, what if it just turn around and run towards you when you do that? That made me realize how dumb I actually was trying to observe its whereabouts, and that I never in a million years would go further onto the porch just to see it again. After I saw it had gone, I couldn't fathom what I just saw until later. But I noped the F back inside. Even my cigarette was unfinished. I didn't even put it in the cigarette container.
Just flew it across the yard LMAO. I went inside, continued on like it never even happened. Went to sleep, and I wouldn't talk about it for another year or so. I have no idea why. But when I did finally tell my said friend, mentioned above, he immediately said the native word we have for tall people. A lot of my people choose to doubt me whenever I tell them about it, and it infuriates me because our culture has been involved with these kinds of beings for hundreds of years. We have a lot of folklore stories, but we also have a bunch of accounts based on true encounters. If you read up on supernatural beings in native Alaska, there are some horrific ones that will straight up scare the shit to you. This happened a long time ago, and I do think of it time and time again. Like why? Why did it do that to me, of all people? I always heard stories of my friends running into little people, and I never did saw them before. I would just be like man. I wish I can run into a little person or something. Or something I recall saying that a bunch of times... It's possible that one of their supernatural powers could sense this. Like almost mocking me, this is what you wanted to see, huh? I wouldn't go out to places at night unless I had a ride because who knows what it would do if I saw it again. This went on for about a year, then I kind of just forgot about it, I guess. Nowadays I can walk alone at night and be much less worrisome. I've done it countless times since then. And if it wanted to do something to me, it damn sure would by now. People tell me that they choose who can see them and who can't. Their stealth is unmatched, and only a select few can see the big and little people. That's why I wonder why me. Why did it choose to do that to me? Was it just to quench my thirst for the supernatural, telling me this shit is real? I'll never know. I'm certainly not going to ask it. This is one of my desert stories. They are all true with the given disclaimer that I'm only human and have made mistakes in perception and judgment the same as the rest of us. I don't drink booze to more than a light buzz most of the time and have only blacked out one says early in my teens. I don't really meze with weed and avoid hallucinogens. Deserts are inherently kinda otherworldly places, even if you call one home. Dens in particular are very odd. I know of only a few places where you can find them in my part of the world. The northernmost are the Kilpecker Dunes in the Red Desert of southern Wyoming, then to the south, Great Sand Dunes National Park in Colorado, and further south yet are the Dunes in White Sands National Park. Maybe there are others, but these are the ones I've been to many times. They are some of the few places where I feel reasonably comfortable practicing firecraft in dry seasons. They are an amazing place to learn about what you can and can't do without and to practice more esoteric bushcraft and survival. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Skill. These three locations are also by amazing coincidence where these stories take place. I'll start here with the one I've been to the most. I grew up in a high desert. They are unforgiving by their very nature, but if you can take what they throw at you, they are full of a surprising amount of life and beauty. The forests and mountains may be my sanctuary, but I fear in my heart that I am ultimately a desert creature, and the dry wind that steals away warmth and moisture also calls me home. I love the desert and the winds that allow nothing spare. I love the rocky creek beds where the bones of the fish that once gave them life blew them into dust centuries ago. I love the rocky outcrops rotted away to globular non, forms by wind and night. The desert is my home, much like any other home. Once you get used to its little tales, a sense of a place forms within you. You know when you're alone in it, when a cherished knick-knack has been moved a four left open. Sometimes the echoes of a missing familiar sound can whisper a warning, a slight sense of offness. Sometimes, though, they can scream. The dunes of the Red Desert are not easy to get to, and depending on which part you're in, entry can be of dubious legality. I, of course, of course, would never advise going where you aren't allowed, and certainly never have in my hastier, less cautious youth. No, sir. I'd been many times, and I tried to avoid camping or tooling around out there in the same spot. Alcohol was usually hauled out, water always was, and usually some lightweight means of defending oneself. But there isn't exactly a plethora of prey animals to feed a huge predatory population, so it's not really all that necessary. Somewhere around a decade ago, maybe more, Maybe less, I took something of an on-again, off-again girlfriend of mine, off-again girlfriend of mine, out to the Red Dunes, hopefully for a, a night of fun, if not outright debauchery. The pretense, which she later happily confirmed was pretense for her as well, was that we were there to practice air-based water-collecting techniques and firecraft. I've never been much of a smooth talker, but what can I say? Hope springs eternal. I won't use any real names, but I'll refer to her by the trade I most associate with her. So let's call her Grace. It was a drive and a half, but eventually we got there, and in relative comfort. Like many young women in the Mountain West, parental worries of their daughters being stranded somewhere by buying them overbuilt sport utility vehicles is with all-wheel drive and enough creature comforts to make you feel like you never left home at all. As they have the gas efficiency of a derrick fire, and Grace was nothing if not practical, she had yanked out half the seats and turned the inside into huge cargo space, including a secondary gas tank. I understand that this is not necessarily safe if done by an amateur and is typically outside of the cab in a truck bed, but whatever. Not my vehicle. Anyway, this was good, as we burned a lot of gas to get out there and the all-wheel drive was very handy. We got there around the hottest part of the day, which in the early fall isn't so bad, and hiked out to where we wanted to set up camp. I had on occasion read about then before and decided to attempt a travel with a couple of poles I had brought for the purpose. 
for the time expenditure of around 20 minutes of setup, and the purpose of dragging crap along the sand, I gotta say, not bad, I was able to haul off. I've out BS out by myself around three, three and a half miles from where we parked. The dunes cover a truly huge space, and my favorite parts are, of course, the hardest to get to, as they tend to be the farthest from the adverse. I don't have an issue with them necessarily, but I like the dunes best when it's quiet enough to hear them sing. I don't understand it well enough to explain it. You'll have to look it up. They are what are known as living dunes, and they make a noise folks call singing. Of course, as a younger man trying, in a self-awarely stupid fashion, to impress my date with my muscles and trying to maintain a lively conversation without revealing how winded I was, don't judge walking on shifting sands is hard. I wasn't listening for the singing of sand, but trying to kick. What Grace was saying over the wind. This story isn't about that part anyway, but I can say, even with something of a bittersweet taste in my mouth now, that it was a pleasant time with a person I once loved, and I wouldn't have traded it for the world. We set up our camp in the nook between a few dunes, erecting a virginal handmade tent of Grace's design and manufacture with some difficulty and good-natured swearing. It was pretty cool, a kind of low wedge designed to be erected in high wind zones and remain warm. It had a dead airspace built in, which was a pretty neat feature to my mind. Along with it, we discovered why a Dakota fire pit doesn't work well on shifting sands, which should have been obvious if either of us thought about it for more than a half second and thoroughly chastised by the cruel dictates of basic physics, dug a regular fire pit like folks with functioning frontal lobes. We set up a few frames which held elevated tarps with stones in the middle over half-buried buckets to attempt to collect dew as well. I showed her the basics, and Grace lit her first friction fire with a willow bough drill, a cottonwood baseboard, and yucca stalk spindle. This is my go-to combo in the western steppe, by the way, in only a few tries. As the pre-dusk light show that descends every evening, known to the natives as golden hour. Probably to everybody, for all I know, rolled across the dunes and mountains of the Red Desert like so much maple syrup over harsh and unusually topographically variable pancakes, Grace and I were letting some stew cook over the fire while I showed her how to process yucca for fiber. We had a very pleasant evening characterized by not enough stew and too much whiskey in a song I wrote. Very much not for her, except in the fact that it very much was, accompanied by one of those horrible little broom-shaped traveling guitars. As is the way of the fortunes of all young men trying to impress women who they should know, have them dead to rights already, the B-string broke halfway through. If you can't make the object of your affection swoon, making them laugh their asses off isn't a bad consolation prize. We ended the night wrapped in a blanket by the fire, watching the moon rise and the stars do their gentle revolving dance around Polaris until I carried her, snoring like Ban saw, into her sleeping bag. I settled into mine and let the sound of the wind and the singing dunes carry me to sleep. As an aside, folks who might still benefit from this advice, 
Take time to remind yourself to remember moments like these as they happen. They are gifts, and they should be treasured as such. I rested comfortably for a while, maybe an hour or two, before the whiskey reminded me of the debt I now owed it, and I went to relieve myself. I was immediately taken aback by two things. One was the ludicrous brightness of the moon, despite the residing in the red. Desert, the Kilpecker dunes, are in fact a kind of creamy tan color, and on nights with a full moon, you might find darker conditions under a storm cloud in the middle of the day. The light seemed like it was pulsing a little, which I assume was probably more to do with dehydration and booze than the actual light sources. The second thing I noticed was the calm. It's almost always windy in Wyoming. It just is. I grew up there, walking to school in steady 40 miles per hour winds. Calm does happen, but it's usually a relative calm, like only 8 miles per hour winds. This was still. Waking up to the calm is like waking up in a strange room you don't remember falling asleep in. Not inherently bad, per se, but disquieting and alien in a small but pervasive way. I climbed up a nearby dune, because if I have to urinate, I may as well do so from a great height. The men reading this will understand. And because I wanted a good view of the surrounding area under its unusually well-illuminated condition, the only sound was my footsteps, my breath, and the gentle hum of the dunes themselves. Not even an owl to be heard. As I got to the top, a mountain came into view. Actually, several did. This isn't an unusual experience in the Rockies, as visibility can often be hundreds of miles in clear conditions and farther from elevation. What was of note was that above the ones to the north of me, there were flashes and flickers of light. Thunderstorm up north was my first thought, which would have been the safe bet, but I saw no clouds past them. I then noticed the ghostly colors of the lights and realized I was watching the aurora borealis, which I was hitherto unaware could be seen from that far south. I took a moment to relax and enjoy it before scanning around me to see what other sights the moon would show me. It was then that I spotted, down below me in a flatter area, what appeared to be many numerous four-legged creatures, cows, sheep, antelope, hell, even deer or elk wouldn't be that strange. I honestly couldn't tell you what they were, only that where were probably more than twenty and less than fifty. More about that in a moment, but in the middle, I swore I saw an old school, I kid you not, covered wagon. Not the pioneer kind, but the blockier, fully-roofed shepherd's hut on wheels that dotted Wyoming like freckles. A hundred and twenty years ago, folks think it was the cattle that built the West, but Wyoming, first and foremost, was built on sheep. However, whatever I was seeing, it was all backlit by the moon, so they were casting shadows from the side facing me. Now, I'll be honest with y'all, I, I don't have the absolutely clearest vision. It's not bad, better with glasses, but I don't usually bring them with me to throw a leak in the middle of the night. So when I say the movement of these critters and the wagon look strange, almost flickery, I expect you to take it with a grain of salt. I expect you to say it had something to do with the aurora or my eyes being tired, and those are all legit. 
Thankfully, I have really good hearing and olfactory perception. What my mediocre vision doesn't explain is why I was looking at something probably less than a mile away, and I couldn't hear it on a still night. Wagons are noisy. They creak worse than boats, even when new. Livestock are noisy, and I'd find it odd to see a group that size with no bells around their necks. Nothing. Silence. Furthermore, why would you try to travel by night? It was bright, sure, but it's not like that's a common practice, at least not according to anything I've ever heard. You want your critters together and easily defended from predators. That's what I understand. I watched them for a while moving slowly across the ground almost like they were underwater. Slow enough I broke off a yucca stock and stuck it into the ground to mark the progress. Slow, but it was there. I stayed up there watching the lights and the procession of shadows for a long time. Eventually I decided to whistle at them. The two fingers in the mouth, super loud angry dad whistled. I heard it echo back at me and then nothing. I yelled a loud hello. At them as well, echo and nothing again, huh? No change in pace, no lights. I started to think the progress might be the moon moving across the sky and not whatever I thought it was. So I decided to go grab my binoculars and try to wake up Grace to at least see the lights. It was a little treacherous descending, but I made it in one piece. Camp was as I had left it, and I relaxed a little. I opened the tent flap and dug around a little, found my knocks but my etmeps to rouse my lady friend were unsuccessful. She was not having it, not at all. She rolled over and went back to sleep and chastised. I went back up to the top of the dune. It took me a little longer this time. I was definitely feeling the climb by the time I got to the crest again. It looked like a little progress had been made according to my yucca stalk markers. Curious as hell, I decided to use the binoculars to try to make out what I was looking at. I couldn't find the shadows in the binoculars. There are two possible influences on that. One being these were old binoculars, and they had been stuck in maximum zoom since I had gotten them. The other would be it was in the wee hours of the morning, and I had several hours earlier imbibed some booze. But try and try again. Nothing. I couldn't get eyes on the critters or the wagon. Couldn't hear them. Couldn't get a long-distance look at them. What was I to do? I said of it and went back to bed. Whatever I was looking at wasn't hurting me. It was just curious, and I had grown drowsy and cold, lying on the cold sand. I narked the direction with one of the stalk segments, slid down the dune on my ass, and crawled back into the tent. As I lay there waiting for sleep in the warm and dark, I heard that gentle dim noise again, and the wind picked back up. My lullaby. Just as I was drifting off, though, I thought I heard a whistle echo across the sands, but from very far away. I put it into my ears, playing tricks on me, and when I next opened my eyes, it was morning. Problem was, I was sitting next to the still crackling fire, not in the tent, and Grace was leaning against me as we sat wrapped in a blanket. I know, I know. If you, this was just a dream, you dee. I can hear you just fine. There are a few problems with that hypothesis, though. One was I put out the fire before going to bed. 
am camping in a giant ashtray with a shovel in hand, it was effortless to put out, and I remembered doing so very clearly. Another was that I was wearing shoes, which I hadn't done to go relieve myself, and I hadn't done since we started the fire the night before, since I wanted a better grip on my baseboard to show grace how to light a fire with a stick and bow. I have monkey feet judge away. Here's another. I could see my footsteps up the dune and the trail from my impromptu derriere, sledding session. Okay. I woke Grace up, and she said that she thought we had slept in the tent. I concurred, and we sat there blearily blinking at a fire we didn't remember building. I asked her to start the coffee and climb back up the dune, this time with my compass and my bindocular. My yucca fragments were there, and I got a heading scoping out where I thought they were the night before. Still didn't see anything that would have made sense, so I headed back down once more on the Achik Express and talked to my girlfriend about what I had seen. She wasn't particularly freaked out by any of it, confidently told me I was still asleep or sleepwalking when I saw lights in the bizarre caravan. She was a little concerned by the lost time and not remembering getting up, but I... I think to her credit as a reasonable person, she thought I was winding her up. I wasn't offended. I was, however, racked by curiosity. What the hell had happened? I'm not a sleepwalker as far as I know, and I, as I am now, writing this, have lost time before out in the wilderness, but never before this incident. Was it just weird shadows? Had I been asleep? My markers were there, so I had been pretty lucid for someone. One simple test I thought of would confirm or deny it. I decided to throw on my boots and hike over to where I thought the trail should be by my best guess, while I let Grace do her morning routines. A short, brisk walk later, and I found nothing. No prints of any kind. This part wasn't as sandy as some others, so prints wouldn't have been everywhere, but there were none. Likelihood of sleep and booze-fueled hallucinations increasing. I did a fairly therapy urge of a few hundred yards in several directions, leaving my water bottle as a guide for where I thought it should be. No prints. I didn't give up. I trust my senses most of the time, and I'm stubborn. Also, I wasn't seeing anything that, given the angle of the moon, should have cast a shadow like that. Scrub, low brush, no trees, no boulders. I kept looking first along the route I thought they would have coned from. No prints again. Something to catch my eye, though. In a less sandy patch, I saw a long stretch of depressed clay. A rut, I realized, and some mild depressions in the rock here and there. A rut from a wheel made of something harder than modern tires with a less gentle suspension. Now that I was looking for it, I saw more here and there. Headed to bisect the dunes from one grassland to the next. Just an old, old trail from long ago. I don't know what any of that was. I wasn't of sober or clear mind, although I was far from... Blackout drunk or sleep deprived... Grace got angry at me after a certain point of talking about it, so I stopped bringing it up. We finished out our outing. Our water collectors were successful in that they collected dew and unsuccessful in that it was about a cup and a half from the three of them together. 
We made a bolo out of some rocks and yucca cordage pre-made its uh, process, and what we had made while we were there was minimal and strictly as a tutorial. We practiced at ladle skills, ruined some perfectly good flint in the attempt to make a pair of blades. We shared many good meals together. Still overall a very pleasant trip. After another couple of uneventful nights, we headed home. I hadn't discussed it with anyone since, really. I have no good explanation. I have, however, been out there again, and while I've never seen anything like that again, twice in my recollection, I whistled at the top of the dunes before going to bed, and later that night, I was sure I heard one back. Probably just another camper. Probably.